You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. Today is Monday, September 18, 2023, and I am very pleased to have with me Dr. Brian Chang, who is the Assistant Director of the Center for the Study of Governance and Society at King's College London, and the author of Economic Liberalism in the Development State and Institutions in Economic Development. Brian, thanks for taking the time out to speak with me today about these two great books and your work in general. Pete, thank you very much for having me. It's a great pleasure and honor. So I usually start these things, you know, in the beginning. So uh, an origin story. So um, how did you get interested in the first place in questions related to economics, politics and development? That's a great question. I would say actually I started first uh, in politics and political philosophy, not economics. Because my first degree was the National University of Singapore doing political science. Um, and you know, throughout my, my time in the undergraduate career, I was exposed to this idea that liberalism was a Western construct. And it existed apparently on two levels, on a political economy and a philosophical plane. It is said you know, by, by this school of thought that people in Asia you know, don't necessarily believe in freedom, autonomy, and individualism. It's actually more communitarian and group-centered. And on a political economy level, there is this idea of the developmental state and state capitalism. And it was, uh, you know, this top-down approach that supposedly led to the prosperity of uh, East Asia rather than the invisible hand. So that was really what I was, uh, you know, exposed to and influenced to in my undergraduate years. And then also this was, in a sense, uh, you know, buttressed by my experience as a civil servant. You know, I was civil servant for two years, engaging a lot of state interventions, engaging in industrial policy. So a lot of this was what I grew up with and what I was taught. But at the same time, you know, I, I traveled to the United States. I did a six-month exchange program uh, in George, Georgia Institute of Technology, where I, you know, encountered some ideas and I encountered the Cato Institute. Uh, and, then, and then from there, I started thinking about Austrian economics, libertarianism. And at the time, you know, I didn't really have a very strong understanding. It was still quite fuzzy to me. And sometime, you know, in my uh, later undergraduate days, I had Professor Chandran Kukatas uh, come as a visiting professor in National University of Singapore, talking about the relationship between culture, nationalism, and liberalism. You know, so that started, you know, to get me thinking about the relationship between cultural difference and liberalism in general. And then from there, I read uh, Mark Pennington's Robust Political Economy, which really put everything in an integrated PP framework uh, for me. And I realized that, hey, this is the sort of research you know, that I really wanted to do. And so the question for me is, how then do I apply this theoretical framework, PP framework, to understand questions of development, applying it to the region of Asia and East Asia, which I'm passionate about? Uh, and that's how I really got started. And a lot of my research so far, my PhD and now, is really centered on this issue, investigating the East Asian challenge to classical liberalism in today's context. Uh, that's a fantastic summary, and your books do such a great job, you know, discussing those uh, kind of ideas and, um, and, and the main debates that exist, which now moves me to my second question, a little bit more details I want to get into having to do with um, Institutions and Economic Development book. Uh, which is co-authored with Tom Palmer. Uh, you provide a broad overview of modern economic growth and development and the debates about that, as is appropriate because it's a work intended for the classroom, and I hope many people use it. It's part of a series that Springer has come out called Classroom Companions, and this is a fantastic uh, book in the field. I plan on using it myself in my classes. And uh, can you summarize the main competing hypotheses and your synthesis in that debate. So uh, what I do in this, uh, in this handbook, you, you rightly pointed out, is really synthesizing various schools of thought, both in history and present day, and really coming to a synthesis from which I draw from liberal political economy. 
So I think in chapter two, I talk about classical development theories, contemporary uh, development theories. So in the classical sense, with people like Paul Rosenstein, Rodin, Ragnar Nerkse, and you know, many other people of which I can't fully name all of them. And I would say at the risk of oversimplification, one commonality between all of those theories is the importance of a big push. Uh, where the state is needed, right, to, 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 in a sense, shock the private sector into, uh, into a more, you know, optimal state. Because if left to its own devices, markets will be suboptimal. There will be these growth traps and poverty traps, which trap people in poverty. So in a sense, from a political economy perspective, the state plays a very important role. And of course, somewhere, you know, in the 20th century, if you fast forward it, of course, there are many, many theories. But two very, you know, influential ones are, of course, Washington Consensus where, you know, in a sense, there is some allegiance to market principles, but it's very top-down, right? Because it's, it's a form of technocratic planning where you try to engineer market reforms and institutions from the outside. That's one, you know, something that was tried out in many countries. I'm sure you know that very well. And also foreign aid programs, which are very prominent in, in, in Africa, in the Middle East, uh, in, in some parts of the world today. So these are some, you know, of the uh, trends, I would say, in uh, development theories in the past. And so what I do in this handbook really is um, to show that there is a liberal alternative uh, to think about these questions. And I would say there are three main uh, unique value propositions of the book. Uh, the first one may not be so unique because I actually drew it from you, Pete, and uh, the work of your colleagues, uh, where I talk about getting the policies right, getting the institutions right, and getting the ideas right. I prefer the term getting the ideas than culture, right? Because, you know, culture is a bit, it's a bit difficult. So from this perspective, you know, I talk about the importance of not just market reforms, but how market reforms must be embedded within a, a larger framework, a rules and norms framework, where there's the rule of law, freedom of contract, property rights, and individualism. And the reason, Pete, why that's important to the Asian context that I write for is because in Asia, a lot of the popular discourse says that somewhere in the 70s and 1980s, there were these neoliberal experts from the World Bank you know, and the IMF coming in to engineer these reforms. But look at what happened. Massive inequality, economic crisis, and supposedly these reforms entrench authoritarian governments. So, for example, in Indonesia, there is this idea of, uh, you know, this group of uh, uh, American-trained economists called the Berkeley Mafia, a little bit like the Chica like Chicago Boys, who are apparently neoliberal in orientation and then forced this privatization and de uh, deregulation onto the Indonesian population, leading to massive corruption and inequality, right? So I say that such analysis right, will be incomplete if you don't realize that these sorts of market reforms, in order for them to be sustainable and succeed, must be embedded within a general framework where there is the rule of law, where everyone is indeed treated equally, right? The problem in many of these Asian countries, Southeast Asian countries, is that these reforms were not institutional. They just happened at a policy level. So that's, I would say, the first uh, important point that I make. And the second important uh, proposition in the book really is to um, talk about the importance of Douglas North, uh, Eleanor Ostrom, and Friedrich Hayek. And the reason why I focus on these three thinkers is really for methodological reasons, uh, not just because of the ideological free market uh, aspect of things, uh, because for me, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm very, you know, I emphasize culturally situated individualism, right? So economists generally believe that, you know, uh, uh, analysis must start from the individual. I think that's important. That's true. But your conception of the individual must take into account his background, his values, his cultural context, his history. Because if not, you'd be accused of atomistic individualism and you, you'd be accused of not taking into account the unique historical context that people are in. Right, which is why I think these three thinkers have a, have a broader conception of the individual. And from there, they bring in history, they bring in you know, comparative analysis, a lot of political uh, economy analysis. Uh, and I think that for me is very important, broadening your methodological toolkit. So I draw from these three thinkers and also because of the fact that they approach markets from a process perspective uh, and not some sort of perfect textbook. And that's why from there, I'm able to analyze a lot of the political economy dimensions of Asian countries, but not just Asian, but African countries beyond the typical Western context, you know, and show really uh, what are some of these barriers, the institutional and cultural barriers that still trap people in tremendous underdevelopment.
And that really is my passion to really unlock this issue. And I think the last aspect of the book really is, I think this is the more unique part, is to focus on cultural entrepreneurs. Uh, and by cultural entrepreneurs, I draw from uh, Joram Mokir, uh, who talk about individuals, groups, and coalitions of individuals who spot opportunities for change in the institutional sphere, in the policy sphere, in the cultural sphere, and push right, the Overton window of change. So that's why throughout this book, I don't just focus on the theory, I provide concrete case studies of what I call cultural entrepreneurs and change agents from Europe all the way to Asia, you know, and how these spot opportunities mobilize the public, influence the government, and provide market-oriented change. That, that's a great summary. I mean, one of my questions, um, or trying to push you to describe a little bit more in a, in a second, is the role that um, uh, basically the creative class and the role of dissidents play. This is more in your Singapore book, um, the discussion and layout of that, but it's an extremely important idea, which I think Hayek lays out in the Constitution of Liberty about the creative powers of a free civilization. And there's a footnote in that chapter, which is by Sir Arthur Lewis, which talks about how these entrepreneurs are always going to be the minority. They're always going to be the outcasts. And you have to have the freedom to be able to be an outcast in order to, to generate things. But I, 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 before I get there, I want to bounce back a little bit to what you just were talking about, because uh, there's two points about this. One of them is the institutional turn. And the other one is why the institutional turn is resisted by professional economists so much. So let me just give um, uh, two little stories and then have you react. So as you know, Milton Friedman went to China in 1979. And as he toured China, they said, Professor Friedman, what should we do? And he said, privatize, 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 right? And then in 2002 or something like that, someone said to him, uh, Professor Friedman, will you change anything about what you said? And he said, yes, privatize, 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 provided there's a rule of law. And so this, again, is what you just mentioned, which is that these, inst these changes have to be embedded within a broader set of the rule of law, freedom of contract, and, and whatnot. So that's the first one, institutions. But why is it that economists and social scientists resisted institutions so much for so long? And I think that gets at your methodological point. And the reason why I bring this up is there's a great, there's a famous essay by Paul Krugman, which is a criticism of Albert Hirschman. And Albert Hirschman wouldn't even be institutional enough for us. <laughs> but but uh, his claim is the, the rise decline and rise again, a big theory in development economics. And it's all methodological. It's, a, it's, it's, it's the reason why Krugman believes that Hirschman was pushed aside is because as we develop more refined tools methodologically, you know, Hirschman's ideas were too fuzzy, uh, too fuzzy. And so we had to re-institute economics, uh, you know, in an institutional direction. But the people who were pioneers of that, as you said, Hayek, Doug North, Eleanor Ostrom, I would mention Jim Buchanan as well. You know, they, these individuals were resisted for methodological reasons, almost exclusively. And so even to this day, you're still going to face methodological issues having to do with, you know, causal inference as a dominant methodology and things like that. And you try to take those head on. So maybe you could talk just a little bit about that methodological challenge. This is a fantastic point. You know, you talk about uh, why economists resist that, you know, but also before we even talk about economies, why do politicians and policymakers resist that, right? Because, you know, if you tell them privatize, 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 they will say yes, yes, yes. Because yes, we want the economic growth, we, we want the wealth. But you say, okay, you, you want institutions, then that's where, you know, they, they may be a bit hesitant about it. Why? Because institutions assume that everyone have to play by the rules of the game equally, right? But, but politicians, you know, sometimes they want the wealth, but they do not want to be constrained by the rules, you see. And, and that's why there is, this, there is this dichotomy there. And that's why, you know, many of the Asian countries that I'm concerned about, they have more capitalism, but they have also become more authoritarian. And that's why capitalism and freedom sometimes don't always go hand in hand, the way Milton Friedman may have described in, in certain sense. And so that's one of my passions. And you talk about uh, professional economists, and no, of course, you've written a lot about this, and... It's very interesting because I talked to some of the economists in Singapore and some of the Asian ones I speak to, uh, you know, and when I talk about these ideas and I show them this book, they say, okay, uh, so how do you predict 
what's going to happen you know, in, in 30 years' time in terms of development? How does your methodology predict development and underdevelopment and the sort of inputs that we need to, that we need to put in in order to shift certain levers to get certain outcomes? And they say, okay, you know, this sort of analysis may not be so scientific uh, because it's more narrative, you're using mixed methods, you're using qualitative methods. So I think there is this idea that, you know, as uh, economists, we need to be very scientific. We need to use a lot of uh, methods that we see in the natural world. Uh, I'm sure, you know, uh, that's what I call scientism. And, and that really still exists a, a lot today. Uh, and I think that's where, you know, uh, we really need to make a good case for the alternative. And the reason why I'm so uh, interested in methodologies because there are certain things that you can't truly understand unless you go down to the ground. You know, unless you, you talk to people, you interview them, you understand people, their natural surroundings. If you don't actually do that, there, there's, there's something really missing in the analysis, which is why in my PhD, you know, I resisted. I mean, I can do some econometrics and regressions, but I said it's better to know more about less than less about more. And that's why I prefer to go down the ground to talk to people. And that's institutional analysis to all the richness, the, the, the messiness of people's lives. That's not very easy to do, right, for, for most economists. But I think that's something essential for us as social scientists to do. So, I mean, this is so important. It's a major part of your discussion about uh, in, the, in the book on Singapore, especially where you are making pretty strong claims about, you know, overstating uh, economic growth. That also relates to China as over, over you know, uh, stating its claims, just like the Soviet Union. Um, why is it that Paul Samuelson, you know, predicted in his principles book that the Soviet Union would overtake the United States in economic growth? And it's not just because Paul Samuelson had an ideological axe to grind. He had a methodological approach which blinded him to things. And you, 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 you talk about that. And uh, but, I, I, you know, in both books and in particular in the handbook, uh, liberalism and liberal ideas play such a critical role. Um, in the story. This is how you get McCloskey into the table, but also Mulcair, um and other ideation uh, individuals as, a, as opposed to, let's say, standard, you know, economics, which focuses on, you know, labor or capital or whatever. And, and you see this sort of relationship between liberalism and economic opportunity as laid out in institutions income development. But you have the more direct application of economic liberalism and the development state that's involved in your discussion of Singapore. A critical aspect of that is the difference between the de jure and the de facto, uh, which is derived from Ostrom. But perhaps maybe you can discuss and tease out a little bit the relationship between the two books and what you're, you know, what you learn from the general theory to then the application or from the application back into the general theory? Well, those are very fantastic questions. So I started more with the application first because that was my first book. And then from there, I developed a more general theory drawing from different ideas. So I think the reason why I started with the, with the specific applications because that was perhaps something that was more familiar to me and also because I was trying to respond to a very specific challenge to liberal ideas, which is the idea that industrial policy and the developmental state, today we call it the entrepreneurial state, uh, you know, can engender better outcomes than the unhampered market economy. And, uh, and, and this is a very strong challenge because uh, it, most of most economies, they usually point to East Asia as the example. Uh, even today, there are many free marketers who say, okay, great, but hey, there's always this exception of Singapore and, and, and East Asia. So I felt that I needed to, to, to really respond to that head on. And after I, I, I did this uh, uh, application, then I needed to then grow, uh, uh, bring it to a more higher level because if not, someone is going to tell me that you are just interested in a few countries. You, you are unable to answer like, you know, development in general. So going back to the specific application uh, in my PhD book, I think why, why that's so uh, unique is because I reject an aggregative snapshot approach that many economists, indeed free marketeers, take when they look at these individual countries. Because for the past six years or so, you know, when I'm in these movements, when I go to conferences, they'll say, oh, you're from Singapore. It must be a beacon of economic freedom, right? And they look at the index of economic freedom and say, look at Singapore and Hong Kong. They are first and the second, right? In fact, that's an aggregative approach. It's a snapshot approach, right? 
So what I do indeed is a comparative historical analysis, looking exactly at the embeddedness, the institutional context, the history. And you realize that even though both nations have free trade, yes, low taxes, minimum regulation, things that can be captured, there are many other you know, complex arrangements, right? Uh, the combinatorial, the way the rules are combined in ways that are so complex, which cannot be, be put into like a simple ranking. And once you come from this methodological approach, which I use in the book, you see that you, know, you have actually two very, very different cases, which then allow me to engage in a comparative analysis. So on one hand, you have Hong Kong, which is free market, but it's a society of creative destruction, where the state does not try to manage bottom-up forces. And when creative destruction is allowed to, to, to have free play, and that's why you have freedom of speech, freedom of dissent, and people can challenge the state at the margins, right? A free society is high access. It's a society of creative destruction. It's not just free trade and low taxes, right? But in Singapore, you have all this free trade stuff, but it's not embedded within a cultural foundation of creative destruction. In fact, the state in Singapore tries to manage creative destruction because if not, creative destruction would upset authoritarian elites because creative destruction would, 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 would cause political losers uh, to happen as well, which is why Hong Kong has always had great civil liberties, a uh, beacon of democracy before China took over. But Singapore until today is a very authoritarian state. And that's why we can't just look at economics. Economics must always be embedded within the politics, within the, the broad, broader analysis of the culture. And, and that's, in fact, I would say my main contribution in the book. It's not even about the free market conclusions. It's, it's more about the methodology. And, and if I may just add in one more point, I draw a lot from varieties of capitalism as well, uh, the literal varieties of capitalism, which is very interesting because when you read varieties of capitalism, many of these authors, they are quite skeptical of, of market economies, right? They will say market economy is, is a very crude variety and there are all these sophisticated varieties of capitalism. But on the other hand, a lot of you know, market scholars like us, they don't really engage with varieties of capitalism or, or really understand that. That's why, you know, one of the next papers I'm trying to do, how do you marry liberal ideas, the sort of Ostrom framework, right, diversity of institutions with a varieties of capitalism analysis? Yeah, maybe we can tease that out more in a little bit, because that sounds fascinating. As you know, my colleague Paul Alajika has tried to contribute to that literature as well. So I'm fascinated by this. Um, you know, you, you're very clear and very, well, two things. One of them is that you do use statistics and descriptive statistics, what I would call data visualizations in both of your books to great effect. So it's not just a philosophical reflection. It's actually a feet on the ground, uh, empirically grounded approach to economics. But it's because you follow this multiple methods methodology idea that you're able to then maintain the structure of the narrative in that is that from your earlier time that you learned how to communicate so effectively uh, using data visualizations, or is that some a skill you've invested in recently? Um, that's that's a very interesting question. I think for me, you know, when I come from political science and from political theory, I think the emphasis was always clear logic and communication, really setting out the arguments clearly, and actually saying what you mean, and not letting unnecessary facts and figures get in the way. But I realized at the same time that, you know, in my later training when reading people like you and various economists, that you also need to bring in a strong empirical element. If not, you are just having some free-floating uh, you know, analysis and you, you'll be accused of being ideological, right? So you need, you need to be ideological in a certain sense because principles matter. But then your principles must be grounded uh, in reality as well and what's actually happening. So, so how do you marry it together is, is actually something uh, not easy. Uh, but but it's very important to do it. And that's why I say in the book, it's important to triangulate. Because some people, they just say, okay, look at the statistics, and that's all there is. Let's interview this person, that's all there is. Let's have multiple methods to work with each other to have a bigger picture. But that's not easy. It, it took me many years, you know, of, of getting all this data together. No, it's, it's uh, I don't know if you've seen it. I recently published a book with Matt Mitchell and Konstantin Zukov on Poland. We have another one coming out on uh, uh, Estonia uh, that we're finishing up. Yeah, and, and that's interesting. Uh, sorry to interrupt, because that's part of the series from Fraser, 
right, on the realities of socialism, and they also commissioned me to write one on Singapore. So in the same series, I'll be doing something similar with you. Oh, okay. Because we we uh, we use data visualization, you know, in there. Uh, Matt Mitchell is an expert at, at doing those. He's learned how to do that over the years, and and uh, it's just just very very powerful, I think, um, especially as a teaching tool. Like maybe you know, again, I'm going to come back to this in a second in terms of communicating with our professional peers. But as a communication method, it's extremely important. And, and you know, you know, as you know, uh, this also connects not only to the way that, uh, you know, Eleanor did her work with multiple methods methodology, but also the kind of methodological ideas that Mises and Hayek and Kersner uh, championed. Also, uh, you know, Deirdre McCloskey and, and, and Mulcure, in the way that you analyze, you know, the patterns in economic history. And so we're kind of mixing all these things in, in a way to try to be more persuasive. And philosophically, this is what, you know, what you were just talking about before. This is what was known as the Arizona School, which was what they called non-ideal theorizing, which is that you always had to have your political theory grounded. And so this is, as you started the, the talk, you referred to your framework as a PPE framework. And I think that's, you know, one of the things that has happened over the last 20 years is a wider acceptance of a PPE kind of research agenda. And you're one of the, the you know, people, you and Mark and others at the Center for Governance and Society are, are really pushing that, that idea. But let me drill down or ask you to drill down a little bit on this creative class idea, um, because I think that's so important. It relates to what you just said. You know, again, your, your comparison with Hong Kong is Hong Kong pre-1997 um, and the world that it looked like there. And, and, you know, you're looking at this creative class, which is this, this source of this creative destruction, right? And, and you're contrasting that. So why is it that the entrepreneurial state can't be creative enough. Mariana Mazuka tells us that it's more creative, right? We need moonshots, so we should have this. So how, how is it that it's not creative? That's a very fantastic question, uh, Pete. So in fact, uh, you know, let me start off with, uh, with, a, with uh, you know, something from Hayek and how I understand a free society to be. A free society is basically where you recognize that individuals have values of their own, which they're entitled to follow. And when you allow people to follow their values, right, this is going to lead to spontaneous order and creative destruction, upsetting the status quo and, 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 and the patterns that we see in the world, economic, political, cultural patterns. So a free society must necessarily be one of creative destruction. And creative destruction means, right, that elites cannot plan and foresee how the process of creative destruction is going to play out. And the thing is that if you are an elite in society, right, you are not going to like creative destruction, right? Because, because to preserve your, your elite status, you have to reject uh, you know, creative destruction, which is why the entrepreneurial state, um, you know, I think what it does is merely identify certain winners and losers that it believes to be the future, but it cannot genuinely uh, you know, unleash the forces of creative destruction because if it does, it would upset the, 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 the people who are in power the, the, the people who are in the elite's uh, status in, in positions as well. And that's why I don't think the entrepreneurial state can really unleash, you know, true uh, creative destruction and entrepreneur, entrepreneurialism. And if I may just add an additional point, the entrepreneurial state, rather than, uh, you know, engaging in creative destruction, may indeed be a creative destroyer. That's the, that's the irony of it. Why is that the case? Because... The entrepreneurial state, according to Marina Mazzucato, must pursue missions, right? You, you, you must have uh, some grand mission that society and everyone else must, must follow. But when you try to bring everyone according to this overall mission, you are expecting everyone to follow a scale of values, an overarching scale of values. And that must mean the use of power over people, right? And, and, and that expands political power and destructive power of the state which would then lead to, uh, you know, the creative destruction of certain enterprises and people that the state opposes, you see. And, and that is the, the, the theory, right? And that's why I'm actually writing a paper, um, planning to submit it to a special issue journal, Entrepreneurial State as a Creative Destroyer, right? Where, where how 
you know, the state actually destroys some of the uh, industries which are not very seen as industrial or scientific or rational. And that's why you notice entrepreneurial states, they always focus on like biomedical industries, artificial intelligence. There are certain industries that they favor, but the arts, culture, the humanistic areas, these things are usually sacrificed. There is a reason why. Yeah, I, 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 that's a very important point that you're making. It's, it's you know, obviously it's a, a point that goes back, you know, all the way to Hayek's critique in the road to serfdom and, and, and whatnot. You have a passage buried uh, deep in, in uh, your book about liberalism, and you say that it's easier said than done. Like getting the reforms is easier said than done. And that has these cultural barriers that you were just talking about, right? But it also has real politique battles, which are normal public choice issues and stuff. And you draw on all of these and negotiate those arguments to sort of lay that out. But you say it in a, just a very simple sentence, easier said than done. Reforms are easier said than done. And I was struck by this because that's so obvious, you know, but it's so hard for us to swallow because once we get the economics right, we're like, what's the problem? Like, just, you know, go ahead and do it. So, like, tease that out a little bit for the listeners. You know, I think that that's, that's a very fa- uh, fantastic question because for me, I simplified as follows, okay? Bad economics usually comes from bad politics, okay? So, if we are just talking about economics, we know exactly what's best for society, right? Free trade is good innovation, right? No rent controls, right? No, no, no subsidies and, and, and taxes, right? Or maybe a minimal level. But the problem is that we, we encounter real-life interests in society. There are coalitions of people who stand to lose uh, through reforms, right? And so the existing status quo may be very, very difficult to overcome because you're fighting against entrenched interests, people in the private sector, with, you know, people, people in government. And, and that's why you know, it's not just an issue of promoting a certain policy because, you know, um, they will say, yeah, sure, I know this policy, right? But you don't change the incentives, right? The incentives are so entrenched. And sometimes also, you know, if you want to unlock the incentives and loosen that, you may have to get the public involved, right? To lower the cost of political action. And that's why sometimes you have to go to the people to mobilize people with ideas. And that's where the ideas come in as well. You need to change the incentives, lower the cost, and then bring people in and creating a popular movement to make the case for these reforms. Because if you're just saying, okay, look at the textbooks, it's, it's as we said, easier said than done. Yeah. It's also the case that, um, you know, in academia, there tends to be very strong incentives for you to, you know, focus on a single exit theorem, right? To, there's like one silver bullet that's going to be able to be the solution to the problems or whatever. And the reality is, is that as you lay out in your books, it's combinatorial thinking. You're drawing from all these various different individuals who all pushed on this institutional thread in different ways. Some of them incentive institutionalism, others epistemic institutionalism, and and uh, still others in in like you know in Eleanor's case, bottom up rather than top down, and all these various different aspects. What you were just talking about with entrenched interests, you can draw on Mansur Olson, you know, and, and all these people, and you put them together as opposed to keeping them all separate and and hermetically sealed off from one another. And I think it's just it makes for both of these books, you know, just to be simply brilliant. And I hope the listeners all go out and get them. You can get them actually very inexpensively at the moment as ebooks uh, from Springer. And, and people should always look uh, for Springer has these sales, 40% off, things like that. And you can get the ebook. Um, so uh, it, it's, it's not, you know, uh, prohibitive. Okay, let me ask you a question along these lines, which relates to us as professionals, as opposed to broad public intellectuals, which is, what do you see as the biggest challenge for your generation? So not my generation, but your generation. That is your peers, the the people that are that are uh, you know just slightly above you that are editing journals now. You know, so you know you're you're just beginning your career. Ten years out, there's some people who are editors of journals that hold you know positions at universities that are on hiring committees, all this kind of stuff like that. What do you see as the biggest challenge to your generation in communicating these ideas? to the students in your classroom, to your scientific peers, 
and to the general public at a methodological, analytical, and ideological kind of level? That's a very rich question. I will first start with uh, the, the methodological. You know, I've always been very fascinated with interdisciplinary analysis, which is why even, you know, when I did political science, you know, in undergraduate, I always wanted to understand economics. And when I read the economics textbooks, I was always dissatisfied because it was not enough of the politics and the, and, and the philosophy, which is why, you know, I, I decided to go to the Department of Political Economy in King's. But as you know, there are just not a lot of such departments in the world. There are a lot of my peers, and in fact, some undergraduates that sometimes I speak to, who feel like they do not fit into a certain box, whether they're a political theorist or political scientist or, or an economist. They, they like PPE sort of, uh, of analysis, but they don't, they don't see that there are a lot of options and outlets uh, for them to pursue. It's much better now than it was certainly 10 years ago, but I think there's still a lot of uh, uh, progress uh, that really can be made uh, in that instance. So I would say really that's for me uh, the biggest issue uh, when, when I think even when I publish in some journals, you know, I have to think about where do I really position this, right? Because if I try to publish more in the economics journal, I may not be as empirical or, or, or technical enough, right? And then when I put it in a development journal, then the issue is a bit different. But whether or not I link it to certain uh, development theories. So I think as scholars, you, you, you need to, uh, if you want to do PP analysis, you, you need to be really good at different things. You know, and how do you frame your, your work according to different conversations? So, so PP can be, it's, it's great, but it's also difficult because you need to be good at the empirics, you need to be good at the, at the theory, at the philosophy. And then how do you selectively put yourself in certain journals and conversations in a strategic way and yet in an effective way? I think that that is really difficult, and you know, I didn't have uh, a very formal uh, process of structured training uh, to teach me how to do this. A lot of this was from trial and error learning, and from reading great, uh, you know, uh, thinkers like yourself. You know, it's really learning on the job for me. So learning on the job and uh, experience really plays a part. So, how about the the rise of the critique of neoliberalism? Does it raise a, a challenge to you? I think one of the things that you do very well in the book is because of the lack of, of the cultural embeddedness of some of the policies, you identify how some aspects of the critique in development economics are actually correct rather than wildly wrong. But there is also a kind of a general indictment of neoliberalism that creates new challenges to people that are liberals like you and me. And I was just wondering how you felt about negotiating them with your students or with, uh, or with your peers. That's a fantastic question. As you know, today, you know, uh, the liberal society, not neoliberalism, but the, neo, uh, but the liberal society is under challenge from different directions. Populism, uh, international war, you know, uh, uh, elitism, racism, and various collectivistic doctrines. And, uh, you know, we have all written a lot about this and really there's a need to push back about it. But for me, at least in my area of research, I'm actually more concerned about authoritarian capitalism, right? Which is where, you know, many nations, when you talk about market reforms and economic growth, they say yes, yes, yes to it. But then they resist the rule of law and they resist the individualism and the individual liberty, right? So that's where the capitalism is embedded within an authoritarian political context. Uh, and that's where China is really such an important player today because they really represent this, uh, this model. Singapore is closely related. Many countries in, in Southeast Asia have become more capitalist, but they remain very, very authoritarian. You talk about parochial group interests, tribal, tribal politics, right? That has always been the story of Asia's development over the past 50 years, right? In fact, if you talk about Malaysia, right, today, it's, it's, it's in a really, really bad shape because they, they just they have racial politics, right? Chinese-Malay racial politics, which is mixed with religion, Islam against the rest, and it's also mixed with nationalism. It's a three-layer toxic mix of you know, collect collectivism. And, uh, and the challenge for me is that there are very few classical liberals who are engaging with this Southeast Asian or Asian literature to really bring the case for, for liberal cosmopolitanism in that context, you see? And that's why, to some extent, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's linked to this problem of neoliberalism, right? Because if you just talk about privatization, deregulation, without all this other cultural, political stuff, 
then you, you, you get exposed to the criticism, right, of being a neoliberal in a sense. That's why as a classical liberal, I'm not just going to be talking about the economic reforms, but the entire package that you need to, to have as a free society, right, which is sorely needed in this East Asian, Asian context uh, that I'm really writing about. You know, and, and that's why, you know, how do we extend this liberal cosmopolitanism, which you have eloquently written about, uh, to these audiences, you know, that I, that I work with in Southeast Asia, East Asia, who have never heard about these ideas before. That's what I'm passionate about. It's, it, you know, it's one of the things I really appreciate about your work, um, which is that um, my own generation was in many ways given one of the most amazing gifts, which was the collapse of communism. And um, and, a, and an ideological sea change in the basic tacit presuppositions that people held. Um, so if you think about the tacit presuppositions that someone faced, let's say, that was trying to be an academic in 1960, that was radically different from someone like myself who was an undergraduate in 1980 and then pursuing my career basically after 1989. I got my PhD in 1988. And I was right there in the middle of all of the stuff going on. And the tacit presuppositions among my peers all turned in my direction. Communism must not work. The problem was, I think, that because people thought we had won the battle of ideas, you know, you think about these big clashes and, you know, the battle of ideas, then they all focused on politics. You know, oh, it's all about politics. And politics, when we boil it down, is simply about minimum winning coalitions, all right. You have to have two. Uh, so out of a population of three, two have to align so that they can take from the one. Right. And, and so what we do is we have to have these minimum winning coalitions uh, to, in order to win. And so as a result, you end up by becoming political bedfellows with people that you never would have you know, been attributed to. And so, as you said earlier, you know, it's not just about, you know, low taxes and free trade. Um, right. It's about something else, something deeper in this. Thing. And, uh, and, and again, like you make a very passionate case for open borders and immigration following in Chandran Kukathas's case. I share that with you as well. That view, the free flow of labor and capital throughout the world. But as you know, populism is fighting against that on all fronts. And and uh, people that used to be even free market people are you know, hesitant to take those positions in many ways. And so we have a very uphill battle to fight. And my generation blew it. <laughs> like we missed, we missed that window, what you call the Overton window. We had that Overton window intellectually. And because we focused on politics, we ended up by missing it in the intellectual culture. And so as a result, the tacit presuppositions have reversed again, I think. So now for people like you and I, we're, we're like Milton Friedman in, in the pre-1960 periods trying to push open a steel door that's doubly locked as opposed to opening a screen door, uh, you know, which is already, you know, unlocked. And so I'm really excited about the kind of work you're doing and the people in your generation having a better shot at fixing this than my generation did. That's why I asked that question. And I just want to know, like, what's it like when you go in and teach, you know, your students at King's? Because London, you know, I mean, your UK students uh, especially at a school like King's, they are very clued in to this criticism of of the neoliberal world and, and especially someone in a political economy group. And you have to address that in the way that you approach the classroom. How, how, how do you how do you deal with them and their criticisms of, of your position and whatnot? That's a great question. There are several layers of my answers. Uh, number one is that uh, you need to be a good communicator. Right? Because when I talk to these students, right, many of them are very bright. They are actually very open to new ideas and the case for market liberalism, if it's actually put to them in a convincing way, with logic, right, but also with passion as well, right? And also with facts and good research. Right? It's actually very hard to combine all of that together and, and present it in a palatable way. But when you do it, you actually be surprised, young people you know, 17, 18, you know, like early 20s, they're actually very, very receptive, right? So I think, you know, sometimes when people say, oh, you know, there are all these like left-wing socialist students. Yes, it's true. That's intellectual climate. But what are we doing as teachers, right? Because some, some people, they are very good researchers, but they're not very good teachers. You know, they, 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 can't, they can't really communicate it, right? 
But of course, if you're a good teacher, that's great. But you must also be a good researcher in a sense because you want to have something to offer, some new new perspectives. So actually, that's one challenge. Number two is that sometimes it's actually very counterintuitive, right? To talk about spontaneous order, to talk about how, you know, like without a central plan, there is like coordination and prosperity emerging from the bottom up. You know, this morning I was talking to a student and he couldn't understand what spontaneous order. You mean just leaving things alone and everything will be all right? No, there are some rules of the game, right? Which, which cause the overall outcome to be filtered from an individual level onwards. So you have to present all this in a logical way, in a clear way, because it's very counterintuitive for young people to understand, right? It's, it's very easy for, for, to tell people, hey, with this new policy, giving the government some power will solve all your problems. So how do you put it in a clear way, an effective way, uh, to overcome this counterintuitive element, to catch the young generation? I think it's very, very important. And one more point I, I just want to bring in is, um, you know, I always talk about the Asian context I mentioned, you know, and you talk about the uphill battle that we as liberals face. You know, I, I'm, I'm still quite optimistic because we live at a very important juncture in history. We are now in 2023. If you think about 100 years before, there was a time when people like Mises, right, they were, they were writing uh, about Soviet socialism, right, in the early 20s and 30s, you know, uh, foreseeing one century of, you know, statism and these collectivistic ideologies. For me, I think that something is rather similar happening now because if you think about China, right, not just China as the country, but a lot of intellectuals that are trying to talk about the failures of liberal democracy. Look at liberal democracy is irrational. Perhaps what we want is meritocracy or expert rule where some people at the top who have virtue and knowledge get to rule others. So that's the Confucianism literature that I'm so passionate about to write and also this entrepreneurial state, right? So, so 100 years later, you know, we are still at this, uh, you know, at the debate of ideas. So I hope that in this next 100 years, you know, we'll be as passionate as uh, some of our intellectual forefathers were 100 years ago. I really appreciate that point. In fact, you give me a lot of optimism by your books and your passion and, and the way you approach this. There is a kind of a, a very interesting challenge to liberalism. Harper's Magazine earlier this spring in 2023, like I think it's March maybe, had a symposium on the future of liberalism. I, I'm not, I don't know if you're aware of it, but it had uh, Deirdre, Frank Fukuyama, Cornell West, and Patrick Deneen. And Deneen, West, and Fukuyama were all totally pessimistic about the future of liberalism. Liberalism's dead, we need to move on, whatever. And the only optimist about the future was Deirdre. Um, you know, and it's, it's, on one hand, she was fantastic in her presentation of the future of liberalism, true radical liberalism, and it's, it's emancipatory aspects to it. But she was facing a very rhetorical high mountain to climb because these other three were all like, no, liberalism is dead. It has no meaning. But what they wanted was exactly what you referred to before as creative destroyers. They wanted to have a teleology of a system so that, you know, like one scale of values, which is the opposite of liberalism, right? Because liberalism embraces a pl pluralism in this sense, and they wanted unity of values. So it's it's really as we go marching, you know, our, our future. And, you know, uh, I always say this uh, to, to all my uh, current uh, speakers, it's probably getting a little corny now, but, uh, you know, populism is so much on the rise and we worry about different forms of populism. And a lot of people that are free market people worry about, you know, Venezuela or someone like that. And, you know, and then people on the left, they worry about Brazil or, you know, Austria or some of these other places that have moved to the right. And I always say, listen, Orwell told us the future of humanity was a giant boot stepping on our face. It doesn't matter whether or not the boot's on the left foot or the right foot. What matters is that it's stepping on our face and we need to stop it from stepping. And I think that our first claim to that, being able to do that, is being able to say no loudly and clearly with intellectual force. And I really think that your books are a great example in, in doing that. So I want to congratulate you on that. Uh, what projects are you currently working on that get you most excited? You've already mentioned two papers, but do you have, are you working on another book or what are you doing? Yeah, 
I'm working on several things. Number one, I'm working on two edited volumes, actually, and that's where I need some help, uh, you know, with the publishing, actually, publishing aspect, because uh, one on Southeast Asia and one on East Asia, bringing together different uh, country experts, right, to make the case for liberal political economy in this uh, context. People call it the global South. I don't really like the term, but, you know, you understand what I mean. You know, to really bring, uh, to, to link the, um, the market liberal uh, political economy with an appreciation of the local customs and culture. That's not been done before uh, for these two regions. And so, uh, you know, I'm really working with a slew of contributors from different countries uh, at the moment. That's one that I'm really excited about. The next one is really uh, a focus on the uh, political theory literature on Confucianism and political meritocracy. For the past 30 years, there have been a lot of political philosophers talking about, you know, the challenge of meritocracy and Confucianism virtuous elites and all that. And so far, there's been no response from a classical liberal perspective. So I'm trying to write a paper uh, linking uh, you know, Hayek and Ostrom with the Confucianism literature, which also has not been done before, showing that the debate in this East Asian context is not necessarily between Confucianism and authoritarianism and democracy. You have a third way, which is liberalism and per perhaps polycentrism. Right? So, so that's a, a new argument I'm trying to make. And I would say in uh, four to five years, uh, really one of the bigger uh, projects uh, which will take time is really what I call Asia and Open Society, where I bring in the uh, political philosophy and economy into a coherent framework to talk about why an open society is so important in the Asian context. Because everyone says the future is Asia. The future you know, is about the uh, billions of people in the Asian continent. Well, that's true. That's why if we want to reach this segment of people, we need to bring in these ideas of the open society that first came from the West, but not exclusive to the West, to these new audiences who have not ever heard about it. That's what I'm passionate about in the, the coming years, and hopefully we can work together on these projects. You know my colleague, Shruti Rajagopalan, right? Yes, yeah, not personally, but... Yeah, she, she has the same kind of passion and vision about India and what she's trying to do there. And I see your generation is really, you know, doing a fantastic job of being able to take the ideas from Human Smith about property contract and consent and the liberal plan for equality, liberty, and justice, and marrying that with the more modern versions of liberalism that one finds in the work of Hayek and the creative powers of a free civilization and spontaneous order, and Eleanor Ostrom on polycentrism and bottom-up sort of institutional uh, organization. So I just think it's fantastic work, and I hope that uh, you know all the people listening here uh, go out and get your, your books and, 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 and work with them in their classrooms or in their own research. Uh, Brian, thank you very much for taking the time out today and talking with me. I, I just can't uh, thank you enough for uh, the work you're doing and, and uh, being able to be here with me. Thank you very much, Peter, and everything that you do as well. It inspires me and keeps me going. Thank you very much for the time today. Okay, thanks. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.